Hey church family, my name is Faith Smith and this is my husband Taylor. Currently we are in the first steps of planting Restore Church. We are located just south of downtown where God has already started to open up opportunities for us to love our community. We felt pulled to this area because of its diversity and also because of the great need for hope that there is here. And so we are just so excited for these foundational stages of church planting. Yeah, really God has already been stirring in our hearts to be a part of what he is already doing in Winston-Salem. And he has given us a vision to see the people in our community find fulfillment in Jesus, compelling them to love their neighbor and serve their city for the glory of God. We are planting Restore Church uh, because we wanna see God's people share the gospel because we know this through the gospel that lives, relationships, and communities begin to be restored. The community that God's put us in is very diverse, both culturally and economically. Our biggest desire is to see the church reflect the community that we are in. A big part of the church planning process is stepping across dividing lines and seeing strangers become neighbors who become part of the family of God. We've already begun to see this as we've had neighbors over for dinner um, and have had neighbors over for a cookout in our backyard. We've seen neighbors who have been isolated for several years, whether it be just keeping to themselves or being secluded by other neighbors. We've seen them open up and get to know us as we just simply share the love of Jesus with them. Yeah, and we know that it is a part of God's plan to see every tribe and tongue in his family. And so what a beautiful opportunity to see just a glimpse of that here in Winston-Salem. And so we want to say thank you, church family, for your support that makes it possible for us to be here um, so that we can love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. Yes, thank you. And with all that being said, uh, we just ask that you would pray alongside of us that God would move through us and through other gospel-centered churches in our city as we all seek for every man, woman, and child to have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I have the pri privilege, after worship and the good word from Charles, bringing you the third sermon this morning. Um, and I'm super excited about what God is going to do this morning. Um, I say that, but I want you to understand, I want you to sit under what God is doing right here, right now. The worship that we just experienced, the word that Charles brought, man, like, we could take this moment so easily for granted and move about our day. You could... You could zone out for the rest of this time, and you would just check back in at the end of the time and then, you know, go on your way. But I want you really to think about all of that you have already heard this morning. A couple weeks ago, I picked out the passage for this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, and I picked out the passage, and I started thinking through my thoughts and what I was going to do, where I was going to go with it. But I had no idea how much tragedy would happen over the past couple weeks. The Buffalo community, um, as they were just going about their day, living their day-to-day -day routines, a man with evil intentions in his heart stepped into those daily routines and decided to take precious lives to do the unthinkable. And as I was driving to small group on Tuesday, um, got the notification 
uh, that an elementary school was just involved in a school shooting, and at the time, they were saying 13 students were dead, one adult was dead, and as you guys know, I don't have to tell you, those numbers rose as the day went on and the afternoon went on. I want to bring it closer to home for you, to some things that you might not be aware of, um, but there's been several shootings here in our city over the past couple weeks. So much so that they've had panels on how do we stop the killing in our city. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. That hits really close to home for me. On top of that, anxiety, depression, continue to rise in adults, students, and even children alike. And of course, there are always the dividing lines that are being placed based on skin color and political stance and personal worldviews. And we are all being asked to step on a platform through media and present what we believe. I know it's hard to think through. I know it's hard to wrestle with. I know it's hard to hear that and think, what do I do about that? And I want to pose a question to you that I have wrestled with over the past couple weeks so much, and I'm happy to pass it on to you guys. How does your belief system call you to respond to the world around you? Can it bear the weight? What I believe that God has led me to do this morning and has changed my heart to do this morning is that he is calling me to center us this morning on what we believe and how we use that belief to respond to the world in a way that brings redemption and healing. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. Let me pray for our time together this morning. God, we are just so thankful We are so thankful that in a broken world, in an evil world, you are still good. You give us hope. You give us security. You give us peace. You give us all the things that Paul writes about in the book of Romans. Help this truth come alive to us as we read it together this morning and break it down and see what it is that you would want us to know. God, be with us this morning and be with us in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul is going to show us in this chapter that our hope in Jesus calls us to be so kingdomly minded that all we do is earthly good. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I'm going to be reading through the CSB this morning, um, but you, the ESV will be up on the screen if that's the version that you use. Um, I like this version, and I'll talk about why I like this version as we, go, as we go on. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul starts this section off with the word, therefore, and he continues on and says, I urge you, or I exhort you to, or I'm appealing to you, do this thing. Paul makes a shift in, his, in the letter of Romans. If you're familiar with the letter of Romans, he spends the first 11 chapters talking about who is God and how do we relate to him and who are we. And if you were to go through those first 11 chapters, all those hard questions of life would begin to be answered. And Paul switches gears here. He says, that it's time for our eyes to be open to the truth that has been shown to us. We can't just keep going on the way that we're living. It's time to switch up and start applying what we know of God and ourselves to our lives. In the first 11 chapters, Paul answers all these hard questions that we have of life and we question life on a daily basis. In reference to mankind in Romans 1.25, 
It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul goes on to say that God gave mankind up into their dishonorable passions. Not that God is evil and wanting to torture us, but that God saw man's heart being bent against him and gave man over to his desires. In reference to these chapters, though, Paul doesn't reference back to man's brokenness. He references back to the mercies of God. One commentator separated these mercies into three categories. Revelation, forgiveness, and deliverance. Revelation. Anything that we know about God is because it was first revealed to us. God has opened our eyes. We cannot see who God is until his word is proclaimed. Uh, Someone gets up and preaches his truth or you share that truth with someone around you. We cannot know who God is until he is shown to us through the power of his word. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As Christians, we take credit for nothing that has been given to us. Rather, the basis of everything that we believe was God first revealing the truth to us and us responding by faith. Forgiveness. God declares that you are righteous. When you are revealed to the truth of Jesus and you believe in that truth, there are some simultaneous things that happen. The things that happen are your sins are paid by the blood of Jesus. Your trespasses, the wrongs you've ever done, the wrongs you will do, are covered by the blood of Jesus. You are now declared righteous by Jesus. Meaning that no matter who you are or what the world says that you are, none of that matters because God has already declared who you are. He's forgiven your sins. The psalmist says he's cast them as far as the east is from the west, remembering them no more. Man can once again be made right with God. Deliverance. God brought you into a peaceful relationship with your creator. Romans 4, 22 through 5, 1 reads, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful truth this morning that is laid before us as Paul speaks on our deliverance. So what so along with deliverance, Paul talks about along with deliverance, Paul continues on, and the basic Christian message is that an individual can be made right with God only on the basis of what Jesus has already done, the work of Christ alone. In small group this past week, we ran through Psalms 103 and talked through it as David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget forget not all his benefits, 
who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with a steadfast love and mercy. What kind of God loves his creation in that way? That he says that he removed us from the pit. He took us when our hearts were against him and that all we, would, all we were chasing after was the world and sin and he picked us up out of the pit and he declared who we now are, placing a crown on our heads. You see, the Christian life is not just about living a good life, but the Christian life is the power behind a good life. So how does faith in Jesus cause us to respond to the evil around us? I take us back to the question that I posed to you at the beginning. You see, the basic faith of Christianity is centered on God the Son dying on the cross for the guilty. It's built on a radical love, a love that shows no limits but offers everything. I haven't even gotten to how we, it calls us to respond to the world yet, but you are already starting to think through what that response may be. Listen, and while truth can lead us to action, this truth about who Jesus is can lead us to action, truth in and of itself is not action. Truth is not action until it is applied. Paul knows this, and he goes on to connect the knowledge of God to our day-to-day life, showing us that we must move from knowledge to belief in what we say we believe. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul addresses the culture of his day in a way that applies directly to us, which is wild, that, God, that Paul could write something in his time and we can relate it directly to our lives here and now. You see, the Greek philosophers of Paul's day, when they talked about their body, they talked about it as an imprisonment. They talked about, about it, how our spirit is trapped and true, true enlightenment or being able to get outside of your body is what they were after. Being able to escape your body, being able to look from the outside in. And they spoke of the body in a sense just of shame and how we shouldn't be proud of the bodies that we're in. And then Paul takes that and he connects it to being a living sacrifice. Paul's using a paradox here, a paradox like less is more, two things that don't normally go together and contradict one another, but he uses it to reveal a whole new truth. The paradox that he uses is living sacrifice. The Greeks and, of course, the Jews understood what it meant to sacrifice. We know that the Jews in the Old Testament were, did sacrifice in obedience to God, showing their faith to, what, to his promises. The sacrifice being presented to God would have to be pure, and the heart behind it would have to be with the right motives. Paul now refers to our lives as a living sacrifice. I heard one preacher talk about it like the, the bad thing about and the problem with a living sacrifice is that it always crawls off the altar. It never stays on. When, Paul, when the Old Testament, they sacrificed an animal, it died, that was the end of it. But us being a living sacrifice is we always like to get up and jump off the altar. We are daily giving our lives over to God. This is a continual sacrifice, a day today sacrifice. So what is it that we're sacrificing? Well, we're sacrificing our desires to live however we want, to go about life as if we get to decide however we can choose and whatever comes our way, that's how we're going to live. Paul knows that it's tough. He knows that this call to die to ourselves is a hard call. That's why he calls it a sacrifice. It's a big deal. But if you think about it, God's way for your life is so much better than your own. 
And him calling you to sacrifice that life isn't really that hard of a call when you understand the reward behind it. You see, the body is referred to as a temple for the Holy Spirit. It is the tool which the Holy Spirit can work through us and show the glories of God to the world around us. He says this is true in spiritual worship. This is our true and spiritual service. When we willingly submit all of our life to God, that is our true spiritual worship. In Isaiah 1, we see this picture where God is speaking through Isaiah to the people around him. And they are offering sacrifices to God. They're burning incense to God. And this picture that he paints is that they're just continuing living however they want to. That, yes, they're doing all these things and acknowledge of a God that he was there, but then they just go about living their day-to-day lives as if he doesn't exist, but only to bring him sacrifices that there's no heart behind it. In reference to this, God says, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. He says, you try to come to me and sacrifice these things for me, but you don't even believe in, the one, in who I am. You don't even believe who, who the one you are worshiping. You don't even believe in the truths of the one that you are worshiping. Unfortunately, in our culture today, this is often how we come to God in worship. Worshiping God only on Sunday mornings or maybe in our home devotion and then going about our life as if it doesn't change us. Sometimes we even come into these moments with a wrong or wrongly motivated heart, not to seek and worship God, but with our own motivations. You see, the real worship of God is devotion of our whole life to him with our body in the world. So how do we respond to the brokenness around us? The response is inevitable. If we are regularly giving our lives to God in a broken world, we will regularly be displaying God's mercy and love to a broken world. But thankfully, Paul, unlike me in past discipleship relationships that I've led or maybe discipleship relationships we've been a part of, he doesn't drop a truth bomb and walk away as if, all right, I'm going to leave this here and now you just got to figure out how to live it out. But he goes on to continue saying, this is how it's lived out. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conformity. Let's walk through it because I know a lot of us struggle with that. I know a lot of us struggle with how the church has taught us not to conform to the world, as some of your translations say. But listen, Paul is talking about something so much deeper than outward appearance. He's talking about something so much different than our hairstyles or what we wear or who we interact with. Paul is talking about the age. That's why I love the CSB translation. It translates that word, that word world as age. Because what Paul is actually getting at is conforming to the popular beliefs of our time. See, this isn't new to Paul. He addresses it all throughout all of his letters. In Paul's time, just like ours, there were a lot of different thoughts and beliefs. Things that were being pushed on believers, whether it was religiously or philosophically or culturally. All these things were being pushed on, the, on believers, and here's the thing, it's no different today. In fact, it's a lot easier for us to conform today. The idea behind the conformity that we see here is that conformity that Paul is speaking against is that it begins to blend with our faith. It begins to blend in with what we believe. And over time, it begins to take precedence of, over the things that God has already revealed to us. So I'm going to give an example, um, but before I do, I just want you to know I'm not doing this to give you shame. I'm not doing this so you walk away and just feeling beat up and not knowing what to do next. Um, and actually, Clint and Jonathan gave us two really good examples. Uh, Clint talked about the financial security identity that we all wrestle with, right? 
And then Jonathan talked about our works identity and trying to work our way to please God when Jesus has already done everything for us. But another one that I want to point out this morning is individual identity. It is the belief that you figure out who you are and what you want to be, and nobody can question it. Nobody can tell you you're wrong. This is dictated by the thought that only I have the right to decide what is true for me. And what is true for you might not be true for me. Paul says if we're not careful, those things will slowly start to creep into our faith, and they will shipwreck our faith. And he says we will quickly fall into these ways, back into conformity. Paul says, rather, be transformed. Paul, speaking from experience, knows that our minds, our desires, our actions are transformed when they come into the contact of Jesus Christ. We begin to be transformed from the inside out. Our desires, our actions, our lives are not the same. He lays out these differences in Galatians, just walking through the fruit of the Spirit, the character traits of a Christian. And he says things like love, joy, peace, patience gentleness, and self-control. I don't even have to give the contrast to you of what, of what those things are because that's these things we know is in contrast to how we live our day-to-day lives. And we know that it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can even live in these ways. This is the change that we're looking for. When we move into neighborhoods and we seek to change communities, we're not seeking to see our neighborhood cleaned up We're not seeking to see our our neighbors stop parking their cars in their grass and in their yard. We're not looking for beautiful yards. What we're looking for is a transformed heart as people interact and come to know that Jesus has changed our lives. So how does this transformation take place? Renewing of our mind. The renewing of the mind is a process. It's a process the Holy Spirit initiates when we place our faith in Jesus. We go from having a mind that is broken and twisted by the world to being encouraged and in renewed by the truths of who God says he is and the gospel comes to bear on our life. This is a process. That's why Paul doesn't use the word renewed, but he uses the word renewing. It's a constant process that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Paul is reminding us that our mind, being shaped by sin, requires a regular renewing of the Holy Spirit through prayer and through regularly reading God's word. You see, a lot of times we can be taken out of our regular routine of renewing our mind. We slowly slip out of reading our Bible. We slowly distance ourselves from other believers and from the church. We slowly start to drift away from the things of God, but we continue grinding at work. We continue scrolling through media. We continue to keep up with our social priorities, all the while falling back into conformity. Social conformity has been a tactic that Satan has used to derail people into evil all throughout history. We're not, we're not unaware of this. We, we all know that that is what Hitler used to change the thought process of the Germans around him to build his Nazi regime. In fact, in 1967, Ron Jones, a 25-year-old 10th grade social studies teacher, decided to do a social experiment with his class. His students came in and they were like, I don't understand how an ordinary German person could become such a part of such a wrong and violent regime that was taking over the countries around them. He's like, I don't get it. I don't know how that could happen. So the teacher started to put into place different rules. He would show them how to address him when he walked in the room. They would stand up real quick. They would salute him in the same way that we saw the Nazis salute Hitler. And then he would start implementing new and new rules. And he just told them that it was an experiment just to see what would happen. By day four, he had lost control of the classroom. Day four. 
They were, they were living in the reality that they had created this inclusive culture that nobody could be included in unless they followed by the rules. Students that came to class and didn't follow by the rules, they would banish them to the library for the class period. And as time went on, the, the classroom began to become this new thing, and it began to affect their whole school system. In fact, by day four, um, he said that there was already a group of people that were known as the resistance, and they were going against what he was teaching. <laughs> Only by day four. So what, what causes us to conform in those ways? As those students go back and you read on those things, those students react with, I don't know how I fell into that, how quickly I just fell into those beliefs. Conformity happens when transformation is forgotten because our minds are not being renewed. So how do we renew our mind? I want to give you three quick things um, to write down. Uh, these, these ways are some ways to remind you of how you can continue renewing your mind. First is abiding, thriving, and living. Abiding, thriving, and living. Abiding with Jesus. That is taking time out of the day-to-day life to disconnect from all happening around you and spend time in prayer, studying the Word of God. This is how the Spirit begins to renew our mind. Thriving, thriving in community. Seeking, our commu- seeking out community of believers who go through God's word together and can help you navigate your life in light of what Jesus has already told us and called us to. Living, living on mission. Applying the truths of God's word to your day-to-day life. Not just hearing them, walking away, and something happens, and you're like, man, I wish I would have applied that, but applying it in the moment. Applying the stuff you already know. If you've been following Jesus for any period of time, there's already so much that you know. And if we were just take the time to apply it, we would begin to be transformed. So what would it look like for you to go home today with a renewed mind? What would it look like for you to go to work on Tuesday with a renewed mind? Interact with your neighbors. Raise your children. Love your spouse. Get involved in your local community. Operate your business all with a renewed mind. This is the heart of what we're behind. This is the heart behind what we talk about when we talk about multiplication. As the elders get up here and talk about multiplication over and over and we're planning churches, this is the heart behind what we're doing. This is our heart. This should be your heart. That every man, woman, and child having repeated opportunities to see and respond to the gospel should be that the mind and heart of every person would be transformed by the love and sacrifice of Jesus in a way that they would begin to live their lives as a living sacrifice to God for his kingdom and for the advancement of his gospel. That's what we should be after. And I just want to let you know that's what the church is defining as success in our city right now. That's where we're setting the bar. Not bigger church buildings, not bigger platforms, not entertaining programs, but seeing our fellow humans break the bondage of sin that is over their lives and who are created in the image of God, seeing them be reconnected with their creator. Paul says we do all of this so that what we may discern so that we may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of God Jesus in teaching the disciples how to pray says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven what does that even mean like what does it even mean for a future kingdom to impact our lives now theologians refer to this as the already but not yet revelation tells us that a kingdom's coming it tells us as Charles talked about earlier that there is a kingdom coming where all the tears of the heart will be wiped away. There's a kingdom coming where death will be no more. 
And my personal favorite and what I look forward to the most is that there is a kingdom coming where people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will come together to worship the same God. Like we don't get to see that here perfectly on earth. But that's something that we get to look forward to. But the thing about king, the kingdom is there's a king and his name is Jesus. And he has already started gathering his people, his kingdom people. You're sitting in this room right now. He's already begun to gather you together for the purposes of advancing his kingdom. And as kingdom people, we are called to be living out the truth of the good news of the gospel, of salvation to everyone around us. Not, no, not thinking that evil and darkness will be completely obliterated before the kingdom, but that darkness will begin to be pushed back as we follow Jesus. We cannot be a people that pray alongside Jesus that his kingdom would come and then live for a different kingdom while we're here on earth, whether that be your own personal kingdom or a kingdom that's being pushed on you. So I asked a foundational question at the beginning of this morning. What does our belief system, how does our belief system call us to respond to what is happening in the world around us? And can it bear the weight? Jesus calls us not to overlook injustice in the world, but rather to combat it with a future kingdom that he is calling us into. Paul lays it out very practically at the end of the chapter. Um, and I'll read through the ESV um, through these verses, verses 14 through 21 in chapter 12. And this is how Paul calls us to interact with non-Christians around us, the world around us that doesn't believe in God, doesn't know God. This is how he calls us to interact with them, starting in verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That hits heavy this week. Live in, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What would it look like? How great would it be for the world to see Christians respond in that way? That as they turn their backs to God and they might show anger towards his people, that we respond in such a way that makes them question if there really is a God because of how we live our day-to-day -day lives. Could you imagine the weight of what that would look like? I want to conclude with this. I get the premise behind being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Um, it's something I've said. It's a phrase I've said. It's a phrase I've read in Christian books. I've heard other people in this room say it. But I would say it's not actually a biblical way of thinking. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, he makes the argument that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Jesus calls us to be so kingdomly minded that all we do is earthly good.